52 people were killed in Russia's deliberate missile attack on a gathering of civilians in one Ukrainian village. This might constitute half of the village's actual population. Russian genocidal war goes on. You're listening to the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist, and chief editor of Ukraine World. I'm joined by my colleague Anastasia Heresemchuk, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World, to discuss key events in and around Ukraine for the last week. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Nastya, thank you for joining this conversation. So let us discuss the key events uh, over the past week. And uh, of course, we will start with this very, very tragic news about Russian attacks on a, a village, Hroza, in Kharkiv Oblast, in Kharkiv region, but also about other other points, about a, a strike on Kharkiv itself, about strikes on Kherson. So can you develop on it and um, maybe mention other topics we are going to discuss today? Hello, Volodya. Yes, today we are going to focus our attention on Russian inhumane attacks on Ukrainian civilians, on Ukrainian peaceful cities. But we also are going to talk about the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the latest developments on the front lines. We also are going to touch upon the diplomatic field and we are going to tell you about the visit of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to Spain and about uh, and about the meeting of EU foreign ministers in Kiev. We're also going to tell you about the International Defense Industries Forum, which took place in Kiev the last week. Right, and uh, these are very important topics. But let us indeed stri- uh, let us indeed uh, start with this with these horrible strikes. Yesterday, in particular, uh, we have witnessed probably the deadliest uh, single strike of Russia during the 2023. Russian missile targeted a crowd of people who gathered to uh, commemorate the memory of their countrymen, of their, of a dead soldier, of a fallen soldier. So, what has happened? Indeed, Volodya, it's very difficult to talk about it, and it's very difficult to choose the words to uh, tell about this trage- tragedy. Uh, indeed, it was the larger, largest in terms of casualties attack in 2023, and it was the largest um, attack in this regard in the uh, Kharkiv region in, in general. So 52 people were killed at this attack, and uh, including a six-year-old boy, a, a small kid. Um, so what basically happened, uh, you've told about the gathering of people who wanted to commemorate the fallen soldier uh, who lived in this village and died on the front line. Mm, and um, this attack was a very precise one. Russians used uh, an Iskander ballistic missile and they knew 
that's for sure. They knew what they uh, were hitting at. And allegedly, uh, this attack was conducted on a tip. So Russians knew that there would there would be a gathering of people, and they knew that there no there were no military objects there, and they knew that they were going to kill innocent civilian people. Uh, the the strike was directly at a shop and a cafe at the same time. It's a peculiarity of many Ukrainian villages. So some uh, grocery stores. They have a separate, uh, like separate place that serve as a cafe, and this commemoration lunch was organized there. Uh, and um, uh, all people who gathered there, they uh, were either killed or heavily wounded. And uh, here we talk about we, we we talk about we are talking about fifty two people. It's a huge amount in itself. Uh, but if we talk about the population of this village, the um, amount, this number, uh, seems to be even more uh, impressive and uh, horrible. So before the war, uh, the population of this village was about 500 people. Uh, after uh, after the occupation, this village was occupied by Russians. So after the uh, it was liberated uh, by Ukraine, Ukrainian armed forces, there were about several hundreds uh, people living. So about a half of population of this village was killed. And just can you imagine that every person in this village lost someone, and the whole families died in this attack. And uh, we find out about so many stories, so many tragic personal stories that uh, that that are heartbreaking, and it's difficult not to cry when you hear about it, when you read about it. Like, for example, Alexander Mukhovati, uh, he lost his mother, brother, his sister-in-law in this attack. And um, he was telling about he how he identified his brother. So the half of the body of his brother was annihilated. And he just um, managed to know that this person was his brother, just looking at the documents that were found close to this person. Or Denis Kozer's uh, story. Denis Kozer actually is a person who organized this commemoration. Uh, it was a commemoration of his father. Uh, Denise, together with his father, was in Lviv, uh, in, in Poland, uh, before the start of the full-scale invasion. And after uh, Russians started this full-scale invasion, they, together with his father, decided that it's their, uh, it's their obligation to uh, protect their uh, motherland. So they went to the front line as volunteers. And unfortunately, his father died on, at, at this war. And at this commemoration dinner, Denis uh, was killed together with his whole family. So he died, his wife, his grandparents, his mother-in-law. And there are lots of such tragic stories uh, about this, this attack. Um, continuing talking about these inhumane strikes, about these brutal terror attacks... Uh, it's not po possible to forget um, about the morning's uh, attack on Kharkiv itself. So early in the morning, Russian missiles, again, Iskander's ballistic missiles, uh, hit the central part of the city. And again, the residential buildings were the main target of this attack. 
And uh, as as of now, uh, according to the recent information, 25 people were wounded. Um, and even 11 months, uh, 11 months uh, baby was wounded in this attack. Just can you imagine a person was brought to this world just 11 months ago and, and now it's this baby is heavily uh, wounded by a terror attack. And a 10 years old boy died uh, under this attack. And it's also very uh, tragic and it's also very heartbreaking. His body was found covered in a, um, uh, covered in a duvet. So it was an early morning and this little boy, he was still sleeping and, and Russians killed him that brutally. Uh, so, um, Kherson, another hot spot. Kherson uh, is never left. Kherson uh, is never out of the focus of Russian attacks. And uh, first of all, it's connected to the proximity to the front line. And here we talk not only about the city itself, but about the region. And uh, recently, um, during for uh, recent several months, the number of attacks on Kherson were just increasing and increasing. And uh, every day we talk about uh, hundreds attacks uh, on Kherson on, on and Russians are using every possible means to kill people there. They're using aerial bombs, they're using uh, ammunition, they're using tank, they're using, they are using everything. And also today uh, in the morning, the city center was uh, hit by a missile. And again, the residential buildings were uh, were damaged. Um, several days, not several days ago, just yesterday uh, in the Berislav town, Berislav is uh, a town in Kherson region, a hospital was heavily damaged and the part of the building was completely destroyed. So um, we see that amid the gradual advancements of uh, Ukrainian armed forces in the front lines, uh, in face of lack of, let's call that success, of Russian army in this war, in this brutal war, Russians are trying to uh, make their revenge and they are trying to um, make civilians suffer. And they want us all to feel pain. Uh, they uh, want to break our spirits by these inhumane attacks. And and here again, it's not possible um, not to be emotional. And you, Volodymyr, we are both in Ukraine. We are in different parts of the country. I'm in the south in Odessa. You are in Kiev. Um, and we, uh, as well as all the Ukrainians, like we don't know what would happen next. We are going to bed in, at night, we are waking up in the morning, and we don't know, would we wake up in the morning? Uh, wouldn't we have to, uh, I don't know, identify uh, our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues, if a brutal attack happens? So none of us knows what would happen next. None of us knows uh, about the chances to survive this war. And when I'm thinking about such situations, the first thought that comes to my mind is not only about uh, the brutality of Russians, it's also about if only we had, if only we had the jets we need so badly to fend off 
uh, the enemy. If only we had long-range missiles to fend off the enemy, to decrease the risks of such attacks, of uh, this scale of bombardments. Um, and it's so difficult to put up with this situation when we, we have to uh, wait for such tragic events to get more weaponry. If only we had more air defense to protect our skies. It would, be, it, it would be possible to avoid all these casualties. It would be possible to avoid these broken lives. And um, every time we talk about, uh, about uh, the tragic events, every time we talk about the Russian attacks, about killed Ukrainians, about the horror uh, of the war, and people around the world, they're getting used to it. And such things are becoming just uh, a use on a news website for them. And we often hear about the tiredness of the war and uh, there are more voices that say that. Why uh, should we help Ukraine in this war? It's none of our business. It's the Ukrainian-Russian war. So it's not our uh, life. It's not our daily uh, problem. Uh, of course, Ukraine is grateful for uh, support uh, to our partners, and this support is stable, and we heavily depend on it. But at the same time, when we think about this tiredness of war, um, I I think I should mention that it's not just um, Russian-Ukrainian war. It's the war of systems. It's the war between freedom and tyranny. And talking about it on a more practical level, without these pathetic notions uh, about values. Um, it's the war between the comfort of being a European citizen. Uh, it's a war of this possibility to live the comfortable, stable life uh, when you are free to be yourself with the um, cruelty, with human rights violations, with absence of basic needs. So it's not just about values. It's about the lifestyle. And if every European, if every listener, uh, our listener just thinks about these events, not just like about the uh, news, about the casualty, about uh, uh, next Russia's attack, but just think about what, what would happen if such events are happening in, in your country. How would it feel? Would it be uh, fair to say that it's not our war or it's none of our business? Definitely not. And the life and the events of the last year and a half show that uh, you never know where and when the next war can break out. Thank you, Nastya, for this very emotional story, very emotional account of what, what, what was happening in these places, and I, I fully agree that this is uh, heartbreaking to uh, hear about this news, to learn about this news. We have friends in, in this region, and I was personally uh, writing, texting to them. They're living in, in another village not far away from uh, Horza. And uh, every, everybody of us is, con is connected to, uh, to the victims, to victims on the front line, to the victims uh, of these missile strikes. And indeed, is, um, every such loss is just, you feel kind of a, a bit 
big void uh, after after all that you feel how just in one instant 52 lives 52 hopes 52 futures 52 set of ideas and values and songs and and uh and uh you know, life projects have have gone into it a big big void and they are, they're not replaceable and when we hear at the same time this cynical debate about whether to help Ukraine again or not, whether to help Ukraine to survive or not, and uh, these debates are sometimes die- done by the people who just cut off their empathy, who just cut off their their capacity to uh, to for a compassion. That of care, of course, is also heartbreaking. But we believe that uh, there are more people of goodwill, of course, in the world than uh, of people who are cynics. Let us continue and uh, go to the topic of the counteroffensive. What is going on at the front line? We just published a podcast with uh, Ukrainian military expert Mikola Biliskov. If you want to get into more detail about what is happening at the front. Uh, you can go listen to it, but maybe Anastya will just shortly update of of, uh, of the developments over the past week. Uh, yes, Volodya, I'm going to uh, brief you about the recent developments on the front lines. It will be just an outline uh, about the latest developments. And talking in general about the Ukraine's counteroffensive, we can say that uh, the gradual advancement is continuing. We don't talk about strategic breakthroughs. We are talking about tactical steps that uh, would manage to provide further strategic breakthroughs. Uh, and again, uh, as, a, as a previous time, I will divide this um, this topic into two directions. So here we talk about the eastern flank and the southern flank. Regarding the eastern part of the front, uh, Ukraine um, holds position close to uh, railway near Klishivka. Klishivka is one of the uh, villages that was uh, taken, retaken by Ukrainian armed forces, and it is a very important strategic point on the way to Bakhmut. Uh, so moving forward in this direction, now Ukrainian armed forces are holding these positions close to the railway near this um, near this village, uh, and they also launch assaults uh, near this area. And why it is important? Because this railway is also an important lo- logistic route for uh, uh, Russian troops in the Bakhmut direction. So uh, this point is strategically important exactly in terms of uh, getting closer to uh, Bakhmut. Talking about the southern direction, uh, namely the Zaporizhia uh, sector, Ukrainians also gradually move forward in the west uh, of the region uh, close to uh, Robotine. And uh, now our armed forces are holding positions close to trench systems along two important, um, two important um, roads in this area. It's Orihiv Tokmak uh, road and Robotina Novoprokopivka road, uh, which are also important logistic points uh, for Russian troops. Uh, so now uh, U- Ukraine is getting closer to uh, this um, trench systems, and it's really important. However, it's worth mentioning, it's important to mention that Russians are trying to counterattack. 
uh, especially in, 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 in this sector, the western part of the Parisian region. And uh, trying to counterattack, um, Russians started using, started using more brutal tactics. They are not new tactics. They uh, were used in the times of the Second World War, but still, um, now they um, started using these elastic defense, so-called elastic defense tactics, which means that uh, Russian troops do not hold their trenches. They retreat and um, taking into account that Ukrainians are counterattacking. They need to move forward and they need to take these uh, trenches which were left by Russians. Uh, there are no other ways out but just moving forward. And when Ukrainian armed forces take these trenches, Russians start heavily shelling uh, these positions and they are using everything they have in their arsenal. They just uh, put fire on these trenches trying to annihilate Ukrainian armed forces. And um, by doing this, they are also trying to create this uh, this place uh, for further counterattack. So th that's how it looks now. And the Ukrainians are uh, taking these positions. Ukrainians are more vulnerable because they are on the open area. And it's very difficult to move, move forward under these conditions. And another trick, another tactic Russians started using is setting fire on minefields. Uh, we know very well that uh, Russians mined uh, huge territories and it's one of the biggest problems of Ukrainian counteroffensive. But now uh, Russians um pouring a flammable liquids on these minefields and when Ukrainians start demining the areas, they just can... Uh, drop a bomb and the whole field would be uh, exploding and on fire. So it's also a very big challenge for Ukrainian armed forces. Um, regarding these strategic plans, uh, so many Western uh, analysts and experts and military representatives told that Ukraine just has several months for uh, continuing counteroffensive because the winter is, is coming. Uh, but uh, Ukraine's president uh, told that um, counteroffensive will go on in winter. Uh, but the uh, biggest problem for us in this regard to continue the counteroffensive is the lack of ammunition and air defense. So um, getting more ammunition and getting more air defense means is the first priority for Ukrainian uh, leadership, uh, and uh, it, it is really uh, vital uh, for continuing the counteroffensive. And exactly getting uh, ammunition and air defense is the main focus of uh, main focus of international activities of Ukraine lately. So let us talk about this because uh, at the end of the last week we had this uh, defense industries forum in Kiev and. Uh, in Ukraine, and uh, the idea is actually very simple. Uh, for those who say that, uh, among the Ukrainian partners who say that there, is, there are no arms, that the stocks are already uh, void, empty, and we have nothing to suggest to you, there are lots of uh, different um, defense industries, defense companies, uh, arms producing companies, and they're ready to engage, they're ready to produce, they're ready to help Ukraine. 
what we need is of course some long-term plans which we need is fund uh, funding finances so what can you tell us about this forum the international defense industries forum which was held in kiev on 29th of september is indeed of a crucial importance for Ukraine, and it is one of the major international events uh, over the last two weeks. Um, first, let me tell about some details, about some facts about this forum, and then we will talk about the strategic importance of this event. So uh, 252 companies uh, from 30 countries got together uh, in, in Kiev, and these were representatives of... Um, tanks, artillery, drones, ammunition producers. They were also develop developers of software for military needs. And um, it's indeed a huge, a big amount of uh, representatives and they were uh, top uh, military production companies presented at the event. And as a result, um, Ukraine signed about 20 documents uh, namely in the sphere of drone productions, uh, in the sphere of repair repair and uh, production of armored vehicles uh, and uh, ammunition, which is um, the most important for Ukraine uh, at this moment. Uh, so um, what was the main topic of discussions? Of course, uh, here we are talking about the contracts, about the cooperation between companies, not only between states, but between companies themselves. Uh, but it's also um, the opportunity for Ukraine to show uh, that um, it is not just a taker. So Ukraine can not only take what uh, our partners provide, that Ukraine is capable and Ukraine is ready uh, to uh, increase to increase the pace of its own production, but in co close cooperation and coordination with the partners. And it's not, again not not only about taking; it's about exchanging because, because Ukraine has a necessary base to build uh, the defense industrial complex. Uh, Back then, Ukraine was a uh, an exporter of uh, weapons, and Ukraine also has technologies. Um, and here we can't help mentioning the uh, engine engine building uh, industry. Uh, so Ukraine is not only interested in getting technology from the West; Ukraine can, can share uh, this technology. Uh, why this cooperation is so important for Ukraine? Uh, because as you've already mentioned, because of this talks about the uh, warehouses with ammunition and other weaponry that are getting empty. So to avoid this situation, it's necessary to accelerate the production and this production, it's better, it would be better if this production uh, was localized in Ukraine so that Ukraine wouldn't be so much dependent on um, transferring these weapons from somewhere abroad. Uh, it's about the transfer, it's about the amount, and it's about the opportunity to use. So if we are talking about the production of am ammunition. Uh, if they are produced in Ukraine, it's not necessary to ask for permission to attack certain uh, territories and uh, targets uh, for, uh, for, Ukraine, for Ukrainian success on the battlefield. Uh, another important uh, thing to mention here is about the companies that were present. 
at at the event. Here we talk about the Raytheon, American company, which is producing Patriot system, NASAM, Stingers, and exactly this company was uh, has been providing Ukraine with this weaponry. We are talking about the French Nexter Group, which producer which produces the Caesar self-propelled guns. We are talking about German uh, rain, uh, rain metal. And we already have the agreements uh, between Ukrainian companies and this company and uh, uh, German um, German uh, bodies, political bodies uh, approved this cooperation. So this cooperation is getting deeper and is taking a more practical dimension. We are talking also about M- MBDA group. Uh, which is producing, which produces storm shadows and Turkish Baikar Makina, uh, which produces drones. So the representatives of the key companies that provide key weaponry to Ukraine were present at the event. Of course, no one shares the sensitive information. No one tells uh, w- what agreements exactly were reached. Uh, what exactly will be produced in Ukraine and in what amounts, because it's uh, secret and sensitive information. But the very fact of presence of these representatives here in this uh, forum uh, shows that the cooperation is moving forward. And now uh, we are talking not only about um, bilateral cooperation in the sphere of weaponry production, uh, as we talked in the previous episodes about the cooperation between France and Ukraine, with Sweden, with uh, Britain, with the Great Britain, with Germany uh, separately. Now we are talking about something like um, Defense Industrial Alliance. And indeed, uh, during the forum, such an alliance was established and uh, 19 countries have already joined this alliance. Uh, so uh, it's a success story. It's a huge leap forward in um, the development of defense industries. And Ukraine, if everything is conducted correctly, uh, Ukraine has a chance to become a big player on the weaponry market, on the global weaponry market. Let's hope, and let's hope that uh, these weapons will will be indeed produced and will indeed pro- uh, arrive to Ukraine soon or be produced in Ukraine soon because we are entering a very difficult process, uh, a difficult moment when actually Russia is entering into an arms race and uh, Russia is militarizing its economy more and more and... Uh, it's actually increasing its military budget. It's mobilizing its citizens to the army. It is producing missiles. It is producing more tanks, more shells. And uh, if Ukraine is not supported, that will be a very difficult task to survive next year. Let us briefly talk about uh, the di- diplomacy, uh, because on the one hand, we had an unprecedented visit of the EU foreign ministers, EU member states foreign ministers to Ukraine, actually, um, uh, last week. And uh, and uh, some other high-level visits, for example, the visit of the President Volodymyr Zelensky to Spain. What can you take to say us, tell us about this? Um, the uh, These two diplomatic uh, events were uh, indeed important and uh, they marked the previous week, if we talk about the diplomatic dimension. Uh, 
so let's first focus on the EU foreign minister meeting uh, in Ukraine. And together with that, I also want to mention the uh, visit of uh, Joseph uh, Borrell uh, to Ukraine. So he, he came uh, to Ukraine to take part in this meeting, but also... Uh, he um, visited before before the meeting. Visited Odessa and um, visited the damaged by Russian attacks uh, places, such as uh, one of the main cathedrals in Odessa city center. And also, he visited Odessa port. And then he came to Kiev. Whole held meetings with the president of Ukraine, with the minister of defense. And the EU foreign minister's meeting itself also happened uh, in Kiev. Uh, so uh, what is important about this meeting? It was the first meeting of this kind that was held outside the EU. Uh, so in, in these terms, we can say that it was a historical event and uh, representatives of all uh, the EU countries were present, uh, present there. Uh, so the main aim was uh, to talk on talk about uh, Ukraine's accession to the EU, and of course, uh, the key topic was the uh, military and financial aid to Ukraine uh, regarding the the war. So the main result of this meeting is that uh, the EU. Um, the EU stated that it remains committed to help Ukraine as long as it's necessary in the face of brutal Russian aggression. Uh, if we talk about the practical uh, side of the story, um, preliminary, uh, Ukraine would receive 5 billion euro package aid, but this package aid should be uh, should be uh, approved in the EU by the end of the year. year. So it's a preliminary decision. And uh, the EU uh, member states uh, told about the continuation of uh, Ukrainian military, of trainings of Ukrainian military. And uh, here we also talk about the F-16 trainings. So European countries are going to train Ukrainian pilots. So it's an important uh, part of uh, military trainings in general. Um, it's also worth paying attention to what uh, Borrell said about this war. And he emphasized very important things. He focused on the fact that um, Russia and Putin's regime is the existential threat not only to Ukraine, but to Europe in general. And um, an interesting fact, uh, when Borrell left Odessa, um, just several minutes after he left, uh, the Odessa region was again attacked by by the uh, UAVs. And Borrell also mentioned about it. And in response to these attacks, he told, I will quote what he told, he told that we will not be intimidated by your missiles and your drones. So it's an important um, message that was delivered to Russia. And uh, I, I hope that these are not only words. If we talk about the regarding the uh, President Zelensky's meeting uh, visit to Spain, uh, he went there to attend the meeting of the European political uh, community. Uh, and he delivered a speech at this meeting and um, he was emphasizing the importance of unity of Europe in, fa in face of Russian aggression. And he, he told that it's a crucially important issue. 
And the main focus, again, the main focus of this visit, the main endeavor uh, was to um, to get more um, air defense systems for Ukraine, especially uh, regarding the approaching winter. So uh, Ukraine needs shield before winter comes. We know that Russians are going to attack critical infrastructure and uh, Russia keeps attacking uh, port facilities, which are so important, which are uh, vital for grain exports. So the main focus was exactly on air defense. And um, in Spain, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky managed to meet uh, a number of uh, countries' leaders these were bilateral meetings uh, on the march of um, of the event. So he met with the uh, Prime Minister of Spain, Pedro Sanchez, with the Prime Minister of Italy, Giorgia Meloni, with the President of France, uh, Macron, with Armenian uh, Prime Minister, Nikola Pashinyan. And again, the, ma- the main topic of discussion was uh, providing... Uh, providing uh, air defense, more air defense systems and air defense means to protect critical infrastructure, to protect energy equipment, to protect ports and grain storages. Uh, regarding talks uh, with the Armenian prime minister, what is interesting here uh, that it was the first uh, meeting uh, between the leaders of these countries uh, under Zelensky's presidency. Um, and that's basically it. So we can say that everything uh, is done in order to consolidate uh, support for Ukraine and get more weaponry. Thank you, Nastya. Thank you so much for this analysis. Um, and uh, and this is really, really profound. And, and, and thank you for this detailed um, analysis of what has been happening. And again, thank you for the account of these tragic events, tragic crimes by Russia uh, against Ukrainian civilians. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. Uh, I was joined by my colleague, uh, Anastasia Heresimchuk, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. Uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting us. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. You can find these links on the in the description of this podcast. Uh, stay with us and stand with Ukraine. <laughs>